Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Today on the Everything 80s podcast, we're going to take a look at the world of cars in the 1980s and count down the top 10 cars from movies and TV. Hey there, what's happening? Welcome back to the Everything 80s Podcast. I'm Jamie. Thanks for coming on out today. So we're looking at a big subject here, which can be its own podcast channel by itself. But this is going to be a look at the world of cars in the 1980s, sort of like the good, the bad, and the ugly. And then looking at some of the best pop culture cars. And I'll do a countdown of what I think are the very, the 10 very best from movies and TV, the ones we all love from the 80s. So again, it's a big topic, but I'll do my best to sort of cover it in a shorter time period. So before we start all that, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe wherever you find your podcast. I should be there. And then also to mention, this is a Patreon suggested episode. And if you're not familiar, patreon.com is a way to help support small shows like mine, sort of to compete in this giant new podcast world that is filled with huge companies and podcast networks and everything like that. So it's a place where you, for just like a small monthly payment, you can donate and support the show. But then with different levels, there's different rewards. So like in the Boba Fett tier, that gives you access to the Everything 80s uh, movie club, where again, I review the best and the worst of 1980s movies. And then uh, the higher tiers give you options to suggest episodes like this or to get shout outs on it. So if you want to see more, you can just go to patreon.com slash 80s. Uh, depending on what you're listening to this on, there should be a link in the show notes if you want to check that out some more. Okay, let's get into it. So like I said, a big topic as far as the automotive industry, which I'll I'll try and look at quickly, but the iconic cars and the pop culture cars, uh, pretty easy to cover. And again, that could be an entire, you know, podcast channel just on its own. So looking at the state of the automotive industry in the 1980s, there's actually a lot of interesting things that were going on, whether you're a car fan or not. Some people may hate the 80s when it comes to cars, but it's also an era loved by many. I think, you know, it really depends on the area you grew up with. And and a lot of the times those are the things you prefer. But I'd say people who grew up in the 50s and 60s would say nothing could touch the cars they had back in their time. And they may be right, but there's some pretty great offerings from the 1980s. It gave us some memorable cars, a lot of duds, and then some of the most iconic cars in pop culture history, which we'll get to a bit. But what was significant in the 80s when it came to the automotive industry was a few things. The first is to look at some of the innovations the decade gave us. So every decade has automotive innovation, but the 80s gave us some specific ones like fuel injection and turbocharging and 
better safety features through airbags. And that became more of a priority um, to protect, you know, families and, and small kids and everything like that. And these are some pretty notable advancements that improved the driving experience. But what was big in the 80s was the technological advancements that came, such as, you know, digital dashboards, which helped pave the way for our new, you know, sort of instrument clusters today. And the technology didn't just improve the cars, but it made driving just more pleasurable. Some of the tech inventions didn't have anything to do with mechanics, but were features that made cars more desirable. This is when like aftermarket car stereos really began to take off. CD players slowly found their way into our vehicles. And then high-end cars were already starting to feature TVs in them. Um, car phones as well started to be included in higher-end vehicles, or you had the option to put them in. Again, this is you'd have to be notably rich, but the advancements were coming. You'd be surprised when you look at some of the, you know, say a top, top end Mercedes from, say, 1989, 1988 that, you know, the average person couldn't afford. But it started to have these features that, you know, usually takes a decade or two to catch up with regular cars. So which, you know, some of the, the iconic cars, which are some that survived going into the 80s? And one would be uh, just looking sort of through the history, the Buick Grand National was one of the holdouts from the previous era of, of muscle cars. Also the Chevy Monte Carlo SS. They were really the last of those vintage GM, like A-body muscle cars. I had a, here's a quick story. I had a friend in high school that had one of those Monte Carlos and it was in pretty mint condition when he got it. This, this, kid was obscenely wealthy, came from a very wealthy family. This was in the early mid nineties when he got it, but it was an eighties model. So like I said, it was in mint condition, but then he put in a CD changer and a huge sound system in the trunk. And you could hear this thing from a mile away. It would haul off the line and everywhere he went car, like Corvettes, Mustangs would all try to challenge him off the light and he would often blow them away with these people being absolutely dismayed because they're just looking at this Monte Carlo, which they didn't know was that powerful and that souped up. And then there's this punk 18 year old kid who should never have had the privilege of driving such an amazing car, but that, that thing was unreal. Speaking of Mustang, it would be reintroduced in 1984, and not everybody loved it. My dad owned a 1966 classic Mustang. He hated the 1984 version. But my uncle was also a previous Mustang owner, and he liked it. So, I mean, I guess it depends what you're most loyal to and which eras you're, you're most devoted to as well. The Mustang would now compete with cars like the Camaro IROC Z to see who is, you know, king of the high school parking lot. The IROC Z seemed, or Z in Canada, seemed tailor-made to be driven while wearing like an acid-washed jean jacket and mullet length of any sort. So I don't know about your high school, but mine became like a daily car show that was sort of complete with the screeching tires on the way out with all these sort of things. Speaking of speed and power, Porsche put out the, uh, what was it? The CTR Yellowbird. And this became the very first street legal car that could break 200 miles per hour. So keeping things a bit slower, but still quick and responsive, Honda really helped to grow the sport compact market 
during this um, era too with their different versions of the Civic and that became a more prominent car. So what was the best selling car for each year in the 80s? So I just, I mentioned Han and the Civic and they become, you know, one of the best selling cars of all time, but they didn't dominate yearly sales through the 80s. They didn't even make an appearance until the last year of the decade. So the top selling car company would be a three-way tie between between Oldsmobile, Chevy, and Ford. So this is a look at the best sellers from each year that has been reported by Car and Driver magazine. So 1980, the Oldsmobile Cutlass sold 469,573. The Cutlass again was the number one seller of 1981 with 454,000. 1982, the Ford Escort with 337,000 and change. In 1983, we're back to the Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme, 331,000. 1984 is the Chevrolet Cavalier, 383,000 sold. 1985, the Cavalier again, 422,000. The next year, Chevy, but it's the Chevrolet Celebrity, 408, almost 409,000. Then 87, the Ford Escort, 392,000. They took a little like five year gap there before they cut on again. Then they repeat as the number one selling car in 1988, the Ford Escort with 381,330. Then the Honda Accord comes out as the number one seller in 1989, selling 362,707. So if we had to pick a winner, it seems pretty clear that Oldsmobile was the standout and the Cutlass is technically the best-selling car of the decade at around 1.2 million vehicles sold. But the Escort is right there behind them selling just over 1.1 million. So if you ever need random trivia facts, that's a good one right there. But you can see how things are slowly moving to Honda as we go into the 1990s, and then they would begin their domination of the automotive world. So that's the best-sellers and a few standouts. What about the not-so-great cars? Of the 80s. And for this, you'll have to check back on my blog because I've got pictures of some of these things. So uh, it's everything80spodcast.com slash what were the most iconic cars of the 1980s. Or wherever you're listening to this, there'll be a show notes link that should take you to that blog if you want to see some of these horrendous cars. Or if you're on your phone right now or near your computer, you can Google image search them. So when you think of 80s cars and sort of the lackluster the k car may spring to mind this bland offering from chrysler had kind of all the excitement and performance as a can of beige paint i remember riding in these several times as a kid and they were all driven by someone with blue hair who had trouble seeing over the steering wheel there were also bland standouts such as the ford taurus and the chevy cavalier but they were you know better performing cars and big sellers, but again, very bland. And I mentioned about the safety features becoming more prominent and then going into the further decades. And this is an era when cars, a lot of cars started to look pretty identical, regardless of who made them. Um, A lot of the familiar design was due to, you know, cheaper parts and mass produced, um, you know, things that, could you know be spread around through different cars also the the safety designs of the cars that you know would reduce damage from impact and whatever you know started to give cars a similar look and parking lots started to look like a sea of similarity but then we had the minivan i remember personally being excited as a kid about minivans in the 80s i had one friend who was the first family i know or knew to own one 
And I'm not sure why, but it was, it felt like a thrill to ride in a minivan for the first time. I think it was because it had the two different levels of seating and, you know, not that it felt like a limo, but it was the closest thing we had compared to sitting in the back seat of a station wagon. And I think the minivan made it feel like taking your living room out on the road with you. There was lots of space and you weren't squished next to your siblings that would result in the inevitable fight because there's only one back seat. This just felt more open and spacious. So they are good or bad depending on your viewpoint. And speaking of bad, here's a few standout horrible cars from the 80s. The 1985 Yugo. And yeah, you're going to have to look these ones up just to see. They, they These hurt the eyes to see. There was actually a lot of hype for the Yugo, but not only did it look ugly, it ran like crap. And pretty much as soon as the Yugo arrived, it was gone. The next one, the 1989 Chrysler TC. And many consider this one of the absolute very worst of the decade. The TC was rushed through the development stage and had so many issues that people just steered clear. It looked okay, but it was one of those sort of weird cars that couldn't decide if it was like a convertible or a regular car. Another one that was... um, you know, pretty prominent depending where you live was the square body Chevrolet. This truck looked like it was designed just with a ruler as it's a complete box. It's all straight lines. Like it came out in the seventies, but gained prominence going into the 1980s. It basically looked like a giant toy car has come to life, but there's also been talks that the square body might be brought back in 2022. And we've been seeing this like with the Ford Bronco and the Hummer now an electric version. So who, who knows? Okay. Next, the 1980 Dodge Omni. This is like the Yugo. It's, again, just painful to look at. Um, It's one thing to look awful and run okay, but that was not the case with the Dodge Omni. The engine was so bad that the Omni just couldn't recover from all the terrible feedback and reports and returns and, and whatever, and it just faded quickly. Couple more here, the 1980 Morse Marina. Some might look back on this fondly, but mainly because it looked like a car your grandparents would drive or like a Bond villain or something like that. But the thing with the Marina is it's considered one of the great lemons of all time. If you look this one up, you'll probably recognize it right away. Okay, last, probably not least, or maybe least depending how you look on it, the 1987 Suzuki Samurai. This is like the Dodge Omni wearing a 4x4 exterior. The Samurai was more like driving a big wheel. Is If you needed ruggedness and towing power, you were better off going with something like the square body Chevy or the big wheel itself. This is like a faux 4x4. The Samurai didn't have enough power to pull a box of donuts and they would easily tip over if you took a corner too sharply. And you can probably picture what I'm talking about by just look up a Suzuki Samurai and you'll know exactly what I mean. So that's enough of the worst of the 1980s. Let's look at the best 
of the pop culture cars. And this is a pretty easy list to put together. You may, you know, move some of the top choices positions around a little bit, depending on your own preferences. So at the same time, that makes it a little bit tough to narrow down a top 10. And a few favorites had to be left out, like honorable mention goes to the Spaceballs Winnebago. But when it comes to movies and TV cars and vehicles, I think it's safe to say that the 80s may be the best decade ever for cars. It gave us some of the coolest and most memorable memorable vehicles in pop culture history. So I'm going to count down my top 10 and then a little bit of inside info and what was really behind the cars here. So number 10, the Bluesmobile from the iconic Blues Brothers movie. The Bluesmobile was actually a 1974 Dodge Monaco. And Dan Aykroyd chose the car as he believed it was the hottest of all cars used by the police in the 1970s. He also gave it a Canadian twist by making the license plate read BDR529, which was a tribute to the Black Diamond Motorcycle Riders Club in Toronto, which I'm very familiar with growing up near there. I'm not sure if you've heard of them before. So over the course of the filming, 13 different cars were used, and most were former police cars actually used by the California Highway Patrol. So they just really wanted to capture that essence from um, the 70s. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Number nine, the Ferrari 250 GT California. You might not know that name, but you would recognize it as the classic red Ferrari used in Ferris Bueller's day off. The 250 was a pretty famous car and it came out in 1961. And what's remarkable about this car is that there were only around a hundred of them ever made. But here's the ugly truth about the 250 GT from the movie. It wasn't a real Ferrari at all. The vehicle they used was a 1985 uh, Modena GT Spider. This was basically just a replica car that Ford fitted with a fiberglass body that resembled a Ferrari 250 GT. Just because there was only the hundred in the world and almost impossible to track down and obscenely expensive. So what you got basically was a kit car here. So they made three of these for the movie and one of them would end up being restored and auctioned off in 2018 live on NBC. And that car went for around $375,000. No one is sure what happened. Uh, so out of the last two, no one is sure what happened to one of them. There's just no record of where it went, but the other one uh, used in the movie of the three was just a fiberglass body that was used um, for scenes when it was destroyed by Fry in the movie. 
Okay, number eight, the Griswold Family Station Wagon. I don't know if anything gets more iconic than the four-wheel drive sled owned by the Griswolds. So this is actually a unique car that was created just for the films. In the National Lampoon world, this station wagon is a Wagon Queen family truckster station wagon. And the design is based on a 1979 Ford LTD Country Squire. Uh, it was meant really in the design to mock all those giant wood paneled family station wagons that littered the roads in the 70s and 80s. They took it up a notch as designer George Barris, who we'll see again in a bit, he went really over the top with the wood paneling and that avocado green metallic paint scheme. And you might, I don't know if you know the National Lampoon movies that well as far as vacation or just even Christmas vacation. But if, if you've noticed the car, it, it actually has eight headlights and it's hard to tell by looking at it, but some other details include the grill area being almost completely covered by the bodywork. So they're trying to represent the shoddiness in production that happened with these family station wagons. The fuel filler cap is in like the weirdest position too. It's just barely accessible. And the airbag is actually made out of a trash can liner. Okay, number seven on the list, the Ecto-1. You may have this higher on your list, but I put the Ecto-1 down a bit because it seemed more like, hard to say this, like it seemed like more like a toy within the movie than a straight up car take that as you will, but it's still an iconic 1980s pop culture car by far. So the Ecto-1 is a hybrid car, both in the movie context and in real life. In real life, the vehicle used for it was a 1959 Cadillac. In the context of Ghostbusters, the Ecto-1 started out as part hearse and part ambulance. And then Dr. Ray had found the vehicle when he mortgaged his mother's house to buy the firehouse for the Ghostbusters office. His mechanical skills allowed him to repair the hybrid vehicle to turn it into what was essentially a company car. But besides the mechanical changes needed in the context of the movie, the Ecto-1 needed to be fitted with supernatural features, including um, muon scrubbers, radio GPS locator, uh, high-intensity microfoams, EMF scrubbers, all that sort of thing. But the Ecto-1 remains not just one of the most iconic pop culture cars of the 80s, but one of the most famous vehicles in film history. Okay, number six, the Batmobile. So the Batmobile just makes a cut for one of the best of the 80s, uh, coming in in 1989. We hadn't had a Batmobile since the campy Adam West version in the 60s, but the Batmobile comes back in a big way thanks to Tim Burton. This was a mind-blowing car for a kid in the 80s, as we all knew the cartoony one, we saw it on TV. I had a toy version of it. It was cool. But now the Batmobile is this badass vehicle and it was like an armored tank. And the thing is, you know, when it comes to the production of the movie, you obviously can't walk into a dealership and buy a Batmobile. So the one used in the movie and then Batman Returns was created by Anton first. And it was designed on a Chevrolet Impala chassis. So there's actually some websites that go over the simulated specs on the Batmobile um, and it's got some data behind it. So part of those um, specs say that the super aerodynamic design meant the Batmobile could hit speeds of 330 miles per hour. Then, you know, the fictional aspects of the Batmobile allowed it to turn with a grappling hook um, and it could jump and, you know, things like that. 
based on the movie, the Batmobile is said to be able to go from 0 to 60 in 3.7 seconds. That would get it beat by a lot of cars today, but, you know, that was an astonishing score in the 80s. And it could shoot rockets, so... Okay, number five, and you might hate this one, but <laughs> consider this a real car, is Turbo Teen. And if you don't know what Turbo Teen is, I did a whole show if you want to go back into the archives and look. And this is a cartoon show and one of my favorite of all time, even though it was extremely short-lived. And you might not have ever even heard of this thing. It was basically, this cartoon is Transformers meets Night Rider. And Actually, that's exactly what it is. It's a story of a teenager who can turn into a sports car depending on his body temperature. This all happened because Brett Matthews, the teenager, crashed into a government laboratory late one night and he and his car got hit by a molecular beam that morphed the two together. It's almost the exact same premise as Rubik the Amazing Cube. So this was intended obviously to be a kid's um, version of Knight Rider, uh, but trying to stand on its own as its, you know, own spinoff and not that it was connected in any way, but trying to become its own sort of entity. Uh, but they had to have it separate itself from Knight Rider. So to do this, they just made the simple change of using a red car instead of a black car. So you can, you know, pass this, is not, pass this off as not being relevant, but one of my favorites of all time. Okay, back to the real, real vehicles. Number four, the A-Team GMC van. So, of course, all these cars are the coolest thing ever, and the A-Team van is no different. Uh, I had a toy version of it. I think most kids had a toy version of this thing. And I think what made the A-Team van so awesome was how simple it was, but again, how badass it looked. I think it was the black and red paint scheme. Um, it gave it a definable look because it, it is a simple van, but something about the black and red and then that spoiler on the back just made it stand out as more than a van. The van used is actually called a GMC Vandura, which is a pretty awesome name. It's a simple black and gray metallic van, but the red striping and spoiler was all that they needed to just make it stand out and become this iconic vehicle. What's interesting is that there were only six of these made for the show. In the first season, the GMC logo on the front and back was pretty prominent, but then was blacked out from season two onward. I'm not sure GMC just didn't want to be associated. We'll see that come up again in a second here. There were a few continuity errors if you're a big fan of the A-Team. As you remember some episodes, it had a sunroof because that was relevant um, for whatever scenes they were in and they had to get out. But then in other episodes, no sunroof appeared. I remember being aware of this as a kid, but not understanding what continuity was at all. The A-Team van, though, is one of the most iconic in TV history. Um, there's a few surviving ones from the show. That's uh, one that's regularly been featured at the New York International Auto Show. You see them sometimes displayed from time to time, depending where you are in the world. Okay, number three, the General Lee. I don't know if there was anything cooler than seeing Bone Luke Duke slide across the hood and jump through the windows to get into the General Lee. So, you know, the imagery now may be a little more problematic than it was in the 80s, but stands out as one of the most iconic of all time. And the General is a pretty old car. It's a 1969 orange Dodge Challenger. Then it has a painted 01 on the side door. The car was able 
to basically defy gravity and survive giant cliff jumps and ramp jumps and just like seem to be able to suspend itself in the air. Some interesting backstories on the General Lee um, and that it came from the old bootlegging days, which is where the origins of NASCAR came from. If, if you don't know this, this is so back in, you know, prohibition era, bootleggers would run moonshine in, you know, their souped up cars so they could outrun the cops, you know, the basic premise of the Dukes of Hazard. Then the bootleggers, you know, of course, would brag about how fast their cars would, and that would end up in the inevitable races against each other. And then they would have to, you know, make these big dirt tracks just to see who had the fastest car. And that's, you know, the essence and birth of NASCAR right there. The General Lee was based on the car of a famous bootlegger named Jerry Rushing. And Rushing named his car Traveler, which was the name of one of the real General Lee's favorite horses. And then the name Traveler was also given to the car, if you know the movie Moonrunners, which is all about bootleg liquor in that era. And this movie is what evolved into the Dukes of Hazard TV series. So you can see all the connections there. Okay, we're at number two. You, you probably were able to see the top three from a mile away here, but number two, Kit. And, you know, I basically can't stop using the word cool here to describe these cars, but nothing was cooler than Kit and Knight Rider. Again, this show blew my mind as a young kid and the black Pontiac Trans Am that was used as Kit could not be any more iconic. And again, I have a whole show just on Knight Rider if you want to go back and look at the previous episodes because there's a ton of stuff about this show and car. But, you know, to sum it up, to make Knight Rider memorable, the car had to be straight up epic. It was the focal point of this show. Kit started out originally as TAT, T-A-T-T, which stood for Trans Am 2000 before becoming uh, Kit, which stood for Knight Industries 2000. Kit went through a lot of changes in design over the four-year course of Knight Rider. When it first started, you know, it was that simple F-body Trans Am, but with a few alterations. The one big change they made right away was the LED display on the front, which again made it even cooler. Apparently, I mentioned about GMC and the A-Team. Apparently, Pontiac didn't want any mention of Kit being a Trans Am. Uh, I don't know why they didn't want to be associated with it, but four main cars would be used and then the various alterations over the course of the show. There's talk that the first Trans Am from 1982 cost 100 grand to put together. I don't know if that's true. And then it was said that the next versions only cost around 18,000. So again... Yet you'll have to, you know, check out that old episode or even, again, do some Google image search on how Kit was used in Knight Rider. It's amazing how they would film and how they would do, like, how they it drove itself and everything like that. But fun fact, Kit was created by George Barris, who we mentioned earlier, who made the Griswold Family Station Wagon. He also created the original Adam West Batmobile and the Munster's Coach. So he's all over this episode. And number one, no surprise here, the DeLorean. Could there be any other? The DeLorean is not only the most iconic pop culture car from the 80s, but the greatest car in movie history. The DeLorean is as much a character and back to the future as Marty and Doc. And the DeLorean story is pretty incredible. And I will be having a show coming up soon all about that. It's nuts, the story of the DeLorean, if you don't know this thing. 
the quick synopsis here is John DeLorean. He was the man behind the, the actual DeLorean car. And he was either crazy, a genius, or both all combined. Before Back to the Future, there was a lot of hype about this new all-steel body, futuristic-looking car that was being released by a brand new company. And John DeLorean came from, I think it was GMC originally. He, he was huge in cars and he wanted to go out on his own. You know, it, was, it would have gullwing doors. It looked like it would be the fastest thing in the world. But to sum it up, the DeLorean was pushed out way too fast. When it was released in 1981, it just wasn't ready for the market. The The rapid production led to so many performance issues, um, basically because it was put together by people who had never worked in the automotive industry before. They were made in Ireland, and they were more concerned with getting these things out. And there was just so many mechanical problems. The DeLorean was slow. It was unresponsive. It wasn't comfortable to ride in. And it was supposed to be an affordable sports car. And then it just became more and more expensive for something that was not worth it at all. The rest of the story, and hopefully you'll look forward to the episode I do, uh, the rest of the story involves John DeLorean trafficking cocaine to try and make up for the losses because they ended up only selling 6,000 of them. But then a very cool time travel movie came out that would make the DeLorean one of the most iconic cars in history. So the DeLorean on its own is not great, but when it's fit with a flux capacitor and a digital display and readout, it transforms into, you know, what I think is the best pop culture car of all time. And I think many would agree on that one. Okay, so I'll start winding it down here. Um pretty interesting like i said a massive topic but the 80s gave us a lot when it came to the automotive world it, it brought a lot of new innovations a lot of new features a lot of new technical advancements uh it made the driving experience better than ever it also started making it safer uh there was a lot of duds that came out um it you know it's it released some classics and at the same time when it came to pop culture it, it's got to be the best decade of all time that no other era can touch for what it contributed to movies and tv so thank you for listening hope you enjoyed this show again if you haven't already make sure you subscribe wherever you find your podcast i should be there and i will be back soon with a brand new episode don't you dare miss it